still a huge problem. And of course, across the world, this is even more true. But even in advanced economies like ours, there are a load of areas where there's lots more to do for women and girls. But it's also true that there are a bunch of areas now where it looks like it's boys and men that, that need the most help. And that's okay. We don't have to choose. Richard Reeves was born in the United Kingdom, where he worked as a political advisor and director of the think tank Demos, before crossing the Atlantic to work at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., one of America's largest and most prestigious think tanks. Richard has published a range of books, including a biography of philosopher John Stuart Mill and Dream Hoarders, a book about the upper middle class in the United States. But his latest book is his most controversial. It's titled Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters and What to Do About It. And it's the subject of our conversation today. Great. Richard Reeves, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thank you for having me on, Andrew. I'm looking forward to this. So can a feminist be worried about the problems of boys and men? Well, I hope so, because I'm a feminist and I'm worried about the problems of boys and men. So I'm, I'm in real trouble, if not. And in some ways, I, I think feminists I have discovered are some of the the people who are most worried about boys and men because feminism's about human flourishing. Feminism's about identifying obstacles to human flourishing. And also feminism's about looking at the world through a lens of gender and seeing how certain structures and systems and patterns might differ by gender. And so once you get past the idea that gender inequality can only run one way, then feminism in some senses is naturally inclined towards worrying about boys and men, especially the ones who are most vulnerable. So let's go to some of those worries. Uh, you talk in you know, a boys and men about uh, the fact that men are overrepresented in prison. And in Australia, nine out of 10 prisoners are male, uh, overrepresented among suicides, uh, tend to be lower scoring on school exams. Uh, when I look at the Australian test scores, boys are a few months ahead of girls on numeracy. Girls are a couple of years ahead of boys on literacy by the time they hit year nine. Uh, and less likely to mm. attend universities. So in Australia, forty uh, percent of bachelor degrees go to go to men. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you think drives some of those differences? Well, to some extent, one might lead to the next. So I, I I start with the education system and the way in which we are seeing these very big gender gaps. And you see a similar gender gap in the US to the one you've just described in Australia. And in fact, across OECD countries. There's a significant gender gap now in post-secondary education where men are uh, lagging a long way behind women. And if you believe that the economy requires more education, then that's going to make it harder for some men to succeed in the labor market. And so you will see particularly men from more working class backgrounds, from lower income backgrounds and men of color. And that, by the way, is where the gender gaps are biggest, right? So the further down you go down the socioeconomic scale, however you measure it, the bigger the gender gaps go. So is these men from poorer households, poorer neighborhoods, more disadvantaged backgrounds are the ones who are lagging the furthest behind. They then struggle in the labor market. Struggling in the labor market, they may be vulnerable to mental health problems and to what's been called by Dayton and Case here, deaths of despair. And so it's not just suicides where men account for about four times as many as women in the US. Uh, and there's a similar gap elsewhere, but also from dr drug overdoses uh, and other 
mental health problems that can lead, I think, stem from a sense of dislocation and retreat and, and at a sort of deep level. In fact, it was an Australian researcher, Fiona Shand, who did some work on suicides among, among men and found that the words they're most likely to use to describe themselves before a suicide or a suicide attempt were useless and worthless. And the combination of all of those factors, I think, has, has left many men wondering what their purpose in life is. I suppose it's worth making two points as we go into the discussion of uh, gender differences that uh, the, the distributions overlap. We're making statements in general about averages uh, and also that uh, not not everyone is uh, is is the uh, the description. So there are indeed mm-hmm. uh, men who are flourishing in uh, in teaching and nursing, uh, and just as there are women in prison. Uh, but those those distinctions, I think, are are important uh, as as social scientists as we uh, as as we delve <laughs> into the issues. Yeah, I'm hoping, if... I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that your audience, if any audience can understand the idea of an overlapping distribution, I'm hoping it's yours. <laughs> right? I have a talented audience indeed. Uh, they should never be underestimated. Uh, I, I wonder, um, it just occurred to me before, when you talk about the fact that the uh, gaps between the, the areas in which boys are falling behind the most are among low socioeconomic status boys. I was thinking too of the flip side of that, that if you look at the gender pay gap, it grows as you go up the distribution. So the gender pay gap uh, at, among low wage occupations is much smaller than the gender pay gap among high wage occupations. I suppose putting those two things together, if societal narratives are written by higher socioeconomic status people that might cause a sort of uh, lack of of focus on some of the the challenges that boys and men are are facing. Yeah, it points to the need to, and I don't need to say this to you, of course, but to follow the data and see, like, look at these intersections of gender, but also class, socioeconomic status, race, etc, and see what's going on. So just because it's true that most American men today earn less than most American men did, 40 years ago, doesn't mean that that's true of men at the top. Some American men are actually earning quite a lot more than American men did 40 years ago. And they're the ones at the 90th percentile, right? So guys, guys at the top, guys like me, the people who are at the top of the distribution, we're better off than even the people who were at the top of the distribution before, because there's been a significant increase in earnings inequality. But the other point about the gender pay gap is, and maybe we'll get into this, is the fact that it's bigger at the top, that women are lagged further behind men at the top of the distribution, is because professional careers disproportionately penalize parenting because they have this is, I'm really channeling Claudia Golden's work here on what she calls mm, greedy yes. jobs. But if you think about like law, consulting, maybe politics, et cetera, there's, there's a period where you really have to put in disproportionate effort to get disproportionate rewards as a non-linearity. And that period is typically when you're about in your 30s. And so what you'll see is that it really hits women's earnings and women's career trajectories very hard in those kind of higher end professions. It's just less true if you're doing shift work that it's going to be hit as hard, right? You might work part-time for a while, but you, but you don't see the same impact on your earnings trajectory. So that's a specific problem among those more elite professions. So I do want to circle back to parenting and the gender gap, but I, I don't, don't want to take us too quickly away from exploring some of the problems that you outline in the early chapters of uh, your book. Uh, you talk about the fact that uh, men are 
literally losing their grip. That grip strength mm. has 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 diminished among among American men. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you you discuss the uh, ge- uh, the fact that the gender gap in achievements is true across countries, and you make this remarkable point about PISA that Finland's PISA success is a story of girls. Yeah, I, I, I like I've been. You and I have both been sort of in this wonky world for for a while, and so in both in the UK and the US, in my case, and so the sort of superior educational performance of Finland has been just one of those things that's been talked about forever. You know, what is it that the Finns mm. are doing? Why do they always win on PISA? Yeah, so well educated. So it was with some shock that I discovered that actually Finnish boys aren't doing that much better than boys elsewhere. It's all Finnish girls, and Finnish girls. There's an, a massive gender gap in Finland. The Finnish girls are way ahead of Finnish boys. And that is what explains the kind of Finnish uh, performance. And that's important to note. I think a general point, again, is we should be kept, be wary of averages. Right? So always think about disaggregating the data if you can. But also like, huh, that's interesting. What is it about the Finnish education system that seems to be so you know working so well for girls that maybe is not working so well for boys? And maybe we should be a bit careful to generalize from that lesson if we're most worried about our boys. The implications of uh, what's going on at college campuses are that US college admissions officers are now discriminating quite heavily against girls, you say, you write in the book. Tell us more about this, because yeah. it's a bit unfamiliar yeah. to Australians, where, as in the UK, <laughs> test scores tend to be the main route into university. Yeah, and it's hard to know how much this is going on, but it certainly is going on, especially at private colleges who are a bit freer to discriminate. There's this weird, weird situation where actually private colleges in the US are allowed to discriminate on the basis of sex. And the reason for that was to protect single sex colleges. But it also means they're a little bit freer now to put a thumb on the scale in favor of male applicants. And it's quite clear if you look at the admissions criteria that kind of boys are just getting in or young men are getting in with lower grades lower test scores than than women are it's a bit harder in the public universities and so that i think that's one reason why the gender gap in public universities is much wider than in privates in publics it's 60 40 in a lot of the privates it's still they're still hanging on i don't think there's a single college now including all the ivy league colleges where it hasn't skewed female but they're trying quite hard those admissions officers to one way or another find a way to let more men in And what's interesting about that is it's not just because they're worried about male applications. What admissions officers tell me is that if you get past 60% female in your student body, you start to see a fall in applicant applications from female students as well as male students. It turns out, and I was at the University of New England recently where it's 70% female. And there are a number of colleges that are at that level now. And actually those admissions officers will tell you that actually women don't want to go to institutions where there are going to be twice as many women as men. And that makes perfect sense. If you think about college as a time when you're maybe thinking about romantic entanglements, it's not great to be on the wrong side of a two to one ratio. (laughs) So, so they know that. And so they're desperately trying to keep it below 60. And so they do discriminate a little bit in favor of the boys. And of course, too, this is just the standard argument for affirmative action, which is that diversity is useful in the classroom. When there's a range of different perspectives, the conversation is better. So uh, I imagine that uh, students would be deterred from going to a single uh, sex university, just as they'd be deterred from going to a single race university. Uh, you'd get right. the sense that, that there's there's less of the, the advantages of pluralism. Yeah, um, but it's weird. I mean, it, the whole thing's weird because I, one of my stylized facts is that there's a 
bigger gender gap on US college campuses today than there was in 1972, which is a big year in the US because it's when Title IX was passed to promote women, right? So women are now further ahead of men in college than men were ahead of women when we passed that big piece of legislation. And I think it's just really hard to kind of to update our view of the world with the speed of which that, that reversal has, has taken place. And so it's, a lot of colleges are really struggling and it's not just that there are fewer men going, by the way, this is an important but wonky point, is that the men who do enroll are much less likely to complete. In fact, controlling for everything else, being male, is the single biggest risk factor for not finishing college. And so there's, there's not just on the enrollment side, it's on the completion side too. And a lot of colleges are really struggling to know, like, what do we do to help our men? Because the idea of helping men, especially perhaps on more progressive college campuses, sort of runs against the grain of the mindset perhaps of the people running those institutions because this this change has happened so quickly it's like it's like the compass is on a needle reversing right you suddenly you north becomes south and south becomes north gender inequality just literally swings around the other way and it's very hard for institutions and individuals to update their view of the world yeah and there is a sense in which you can you can understand that perspective because you look at the big picture Mm. um there are more uh, large companies run by people with the, la- the first name John than there are by women. Uh, mm-hmm. There's uh, a big gender pay gap in that fa- favours men. Uh, the dominant power structures in society tend to be tend to be run by men. So talking about the problems of of men uh, can, I think, be seen as as failing to see the the wood for the trees. Yeah, yeah, because people, if you get trapped in a zero sum view of the world and you don't give yourself permission to think two thoughts at once then then that of course that's true but i think i think it's perfectly possible to think that there are not enough women in parliament there are not enough women in ceo positions uh, that there are not enough women getting getting venture capital only two percent of venture capital in the u.s goes to goes to women. I happen to, to know that very personally because my wife is trying to raise money right now from venture capital. So I get reminded of this on a, I think, a daily basis. And, and so it's perfectly possible to say, look, over here, there are still a huge problem. And of course, across the world, this is even more true. But even in advanced economies like ours, there are a load of areas where there's lots more to do for women and girls. But it's also true that there are a bunch of areas now where it looks like it's boys and men that, that need the most help. And that's okay. We don't have to choose. It'd be like saying to the parent, I don't know, do you have sons and daughters, Andrew? I can't remember. I have three sons, just like you. Yeah, so just like me. Okay. But like, it'd be like saying to the parent of someone who has sons and daughters, well, which ones are you going to care about? Right? It's crazy. Of course, we care about both. And we're now at a position where there are some issues that do go the other way. And it doesn't require us to give up any of our commitments to helping women and girls. And anybody who frames it that way, I think is just not a friend of this debate. You talk in the book at one point about not robbing men's inequalities of the moral force of egalitarianism. You talk about mm. the importance of being able to use that, that egalitarian language uh, in instances in which boys have slipped behind. But I can understand a, a sort of feminist discomfort uh, in, a, in a world dominated in so many spheres by men with men wanting to use that that language uh, which has traditionally been uh, the, uh, the, the the language of uh, a, uh, an underrepresented and less powerful group. Yeah, it's interesting. I got into a debate with someone recently about the difference between the use of the word inequality and gap, because I was talking about gender inequalities in higher education and in education generally now running kind of running to, to disfavor boys and men. I'm like, well, it's not an inequality, is it? It's just a gap. 
And I thought, well, that is the same thing. And I was using them synonymously. And it became clear to me that the that the woman I was having this discussion with is like, no, no, inequality implies an injustice. It implies there's something kind of, you know, there's something deliberate going on there. So it stopped me a, a little bit. I made me think I need to be careful about my words here. What I mean by this idea of egalitarianism is that if you just look at if you look at two groups, whether it's by race or gender or class or geography, and you just see these, these quite strong patterns of difference in their outcomes on some important measures, whether that's a mental health or education or employment or anything we've just talked about, and you say, huh, that's a pretty big gap. That, that should at least make you look hard at the structures and systems that are producing those differences, right? And we shouldn't stop doing that just because the inequality like goes the other way. And so if we see very big educational gaps or inequalities, depending on which words we use, that now just run huge gaps, where you just use the ones for Australia, well, you might say, well, that's okay. It doesn't matter if it's that way around. I'm not sure that's right. I think that the spirit of the women's movement and lots of other movements is to say, look, we want a world where everybody has an equal chance to flourish. And if there are sufficiently big gaps by group, we should just begin to wonder whether that isn't something about the structures of our society that are leading to that result. And if you're and if you're interested in equality, I don't think you can cherry pick which 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 equalities you're going to care about. No, I like that language, uh, and and I have to confess, uh, Richard, I, I probably wouldn't have read a book with the title of yours if I hadn't known you beforehand. Uh, so mm-hmm. I suppose that reflects some of my discomfort with the way this is this is going, and the sort of uh, the way the way in which. Um, some of the figures of the of, of the the men's movement on the right have been capturing this. Uh, yes. But one of your arguments that drew me in was the notion that if progressives fail to talk about some of the problems that are facing boys and men, then they will they will legitimately look elsewhere. And and you talk particularly about. Uh, challenges for black men uh, around earnings, education, marriage, incarceration. Tell us a little bit about how that manifests. Yes. So there's two things there. One is that I do, I feel very strongly that we can't concede this ground to irresponsible people, whether that's online or electorally. And I think that's the result. I think if I quote somebody in the book saying that if there are real problems in a society and responsible people don't address them, then irresponsible people will exploit them. I think that's true. And so just not talking about these issues for fear that it will somehow you know, give credence to the people on the right actually is precisely the wrong strategy. The failure to talk about them gives credence to the people on the right because they can then say, no one's talking about these issues. Why is no one talking about the issues of boys and men? And the answer is because we're afraid to. And in fact, everyone said to me, don't write this book. I don't think I had a single Brookings colleague that didn't say to me, don't write this book. Don't write this book. It's just too dangerous. It's too treacherous. It's just, I'm like, seriously, we're not going to write about or talk about this thing because we're afraid we'll be seen as an alt-right person. Well, guess what that means? The only people that are going to write about this are the people who don't care if they're seen as an alt-right person, which means the only, so it's a classic definition of a vicious circle. And I do feel very strongly about the particular issue of black boys and men. And I write a lot about this in the book because all of the gender inequalities we just talked about are just even bigger when it comes to black boys and men in education, employment, incarceration, et cetera. There's, there's a particular pain point in the US for black boys and men in the education system and employment and in the criminal justice system. And, and the, the, the really sharp way to put this is that it's not that black men and boys are worse off despite their gender. They're worse off in many cases because of their gender. Because they're male, they're seen as more threatening 
more risky. They're more like, and therefore they're more likely to be suspended, arrested, etc. They're more discriminated against in the labor market um, because they're male and black. <laughs> and so the intersection of uh, gender and race really, uh, I think, it is huge. Meanwhile, we see really encouraging improvements in the outcomes for black women and girls. I mean, as, as you'll probably know from some of the Raj Chetty work that's been done here in the US, black women are as upwardly mobile as white women. But black men are not anything like as upwardly mobile. All of the gap in upward mobility between black and white uh, in, in the US is because of black men. Uh, and the, all of the gaps in education are just much, much wider for black Americans than they are for other Americans. And you talk about the uh, parts of America where uh, black men can't go for a run around the neighborhood because they're uh, they're risk seen, being seen as a, as a predator. Uh, you tell the story too of uh, Dwight's glasses. Tell me about Dwight's glasses. Yes, and for those who just want that 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 version of the story, there's a, a an essay version of that chapter and a nice video of Dwight himself on the Brookings website. Uh, Dwight's my godson. Uh, he's a very tall black guy from Baltimore, and he told me the story of putting on. Uh, he sells cars uh, for a living, and he told me he's wearing glasses one day. And I said, "Wow, are you are you finally ages catching up with you?" And he said, "No, no, they're they're to clear lenses. I don't need glasses." I said, well, "Why are you wearing Why are you wearing them then?" And he said, because white people buy more cars from me when I put these on. And it turns out that there are very few black people in America that don't know about this. Um, and very few criminal defense lawyers who don't know about it. They will very often have their black defendants, clients put on unnecessary clear lens glasses because it seems to uh, affect the way that the jury looks at them. It doesn't have any effect on any other gender or race. And the conclusion, uh, and Dwight's just like, well, that's just the way it is. I'm like, no, that shouldn't, like, like, how can we be in a situation where you literally have to kind of disguise yourself almost in order for people to trust you enough to want to buy a car from you? And it's because the immediate instinctive reaction of white Americans to a black man is one of threat. And so he's doing everything, he, and he's big as well, and so he's doing everything he can to diminish that threat. So just put on a pair of glasses. I'm like, you and I are both wearing glasses now, right? As we, we can see each other and people can't see, right? So like, and... It turns out that that somewhat diminishes the threat stereotype that black men face. But I got to tell you that it was just one of those moments where the, like the floor opens up underneath you, and you just you you just you're, you it's a dizzying moment where you just you see the world briefly and fleetingly and partially through somebody else's experience, and you think, oh my god. Uh, uh, but as I said, I, I did a focus group with young black men, and I told this story and. There are 12 men in the room and two of them took their glasses off and said, yeah, me too. Same. I'm like, wow, how did I not know this? I love the way you encapsulated that finding in your book where you said uh, black men are needing to wear clear lens glasses, not so they can see us, but so we can properly see them. Mm -hmm. You, one of the parts of the book, which was quite unfamiliar to me, Richard, was uh, your notion that boys are orchids and girls are dandelions. Uh, that a range of social interventions don't seem to, to work as well for boys. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, so it's a couple of things. One is the, the, the descriptive part of that is that it's just pretty clear that being disadvantaged in one way or another, a poor neighborhood, a poor family, an unstable family situation, a, you know, a lower quality school, all of those things affect boys somewhat more than girls, again, on average, of course. Uh, and so poverty 
just seems to impact the life chances of boys more than girls. It's not that it does. Of course, it affects girls as well, but just affects boys a bit more. And what that means is there's a more of a there's a more intergenerational pattern to male disadvantage. It gets passed on, and uh, and that's counterintuitive. So, so the orchid notion is that the orchid is is dependent on it's yes. more more vulnerable to its circumstances, more whereas the dandelion is regardless, right? Flourish anyway. Yeah. So there's so psychologists use this term to describe yes that the dandelions are just a bit tougher, more resilient. Orchids need more. They need the environment to be a bit better for them to flourish. And it turns right. out that boys are a bit boys are a bit more orchid. Girls are a bit more dandelion. And what that means, by the way, is that if you really care about boys and men, as many people on perhaps on the more conservative side would say they do, well, you should be caring a lot more about poverty and inequality then, because poverty and inequality is hurting boys and boys a lot more. Uh, but equally, if you care about poverty and inequality and you particularly care about it being passed on generation to generation, then you should really be paying a lot more attention to what's happening to boys, because they are the main intergenerate they're more likely to suffer this intergenerational and the second part of that is the evaluative part of the story which is that i was quite shocked to discover that a number of interventions especially in education but not only worked overall but the overall disguised a gender difference they worked for women or girls they didn't work for boys and men and there's one in particular in kalamazoo michigan which has a famous free college program, famous because it's incredibly generous. It's completely free. In the US context, that's a very big deal, of course, for anyone who graduates high school in that town. And it's been very well evaluated, which is almost unique among those sorts of programs. And what they found was a massive increase, more than a 50% increase in college completion rates for girls from the area and zero impact on boys. So making college completely free didn't move the needle at all uh, which meant, by the way, and you'll like this, Andrew, which meant that it was uh, the ROI, the return on the investment of that policy, was strongly negative for boys because it was quite expensive and didn't work at all. Um, and then I looked around, and what I discovered is that that's true for a lot of other interventions. Not all interventions, of course, but there's, to the extent that you see a gender difference in the outcomes from a, a policy intervention, it's almost, almost always that it's worked for girls and women, but not worked for boys and men. So I think that speaks to something else about incentives, motivation, purpose, identity, planfulness, et cetera. So one corollary of that is presumably that we should think carefully about who goes into these programs and that uh, some of them should should in fact be more targeted towards, uh, towards girls. Uh, the other is that we should think about programs that work specifically for boys and and one of the interventions yes. we're advocating for boys uh, is to ensure that uh, if we walk into the typical class uh, the uh, the boys are chronologically older than the girls and you'd achieve that by uh, what Americans call red shirting uh, mm -hmm. unfamiliar to Australians but effectively means to hold a child back from starting school by a year uh, why do you think we should red shirt boys well, you st I think right at the top of the conversation, you gave the Australian statistics for how far behind uh, boys are in school. And that's a pattern uh, across uh, across most countries. So in, in the US now, uh, in the average school districts, uh, the girls are about almost a grade level ahead in English and literacy, and uh, there's no gap in math. In poorer school districts, they're way ahead in both. And and that's just a pattern across, across the, the world, if, effectively. And the main reason for that, I believe, I think a number of reasons, but I think the main reason for that is because boys mature later. 
in terms of just the development of certain skills. And that's because they hit puberty later, which means that certain parts of the brain develop later. This is the frontal lobe. It's the bit of your brain that turns in your chemistry homework, remembers you've got chemistry homework, does the chemistry homework, you know? Uh, and so like, it's just, and again, actually one of my most progressive and most feminist colleagues read a draft of the book and she, she wrote, well, duh next to that section like she says I've got a son and a daughter tell me something I don't know because she's like having to do his backpack take his lunch so every parent knows this right but we ignore it in education policy and it turns out that especially around the age of five but then again in adolescence there's a non-trivial average developmental gap between boys and girls and so if we chronologically made boys a year older developmentally we get closer to a level playing field because a 16 year old boy is actually quite close developmentally to a 15 year old girl and so by having that staggered age you'd actually create classrooms that were somewhat more developmentally equal and i believe that that would help narrow some of these gaps and that the reason i i think we didn't see these huge gender gaps in favor of girls earlier was because of sexism was because girls weren't encouraged to succeed educationally but but once we started encouraging girls to succeed educationally their natural advantages in the classroom really started to show up and i think this is this is this is one of them which is just they develop earlier so then under your proposal richard uh, boys would spend another year in early childhood before they hit school yeah. Yes. So to get two, basically get a, to get an extra year of early childhood development. Yeah. And you'd rob them of a year of labour market earnings too, wouldn't you? I mean, that's the the, sta the standard effect of redshirting. If you if the person retires at the same the same age as they would have otherwise, is uh, uh, they they lose a year of labour market uh, earnings and and the the experience gains that come from that year. Yeah, that's one of the the disadvantages disadvantages of it. But on the other hand. There actually, it's actually not that many boys who go straight from high school to college or the equivalent, and then straight from there into the labor market, and then have an uninterrupted labor market trajectory all the way through retirement. If that was the case, I would be more worried about this. But especially the boys I'm most worried about have a much more staccato journey through their late teens and 20s. And so, you know, we lose years, especially in the US, we lose years, like, a lot of years between dropouts and stopouts and you know taking time out of the labor market or whatever it is and so my hope is that they did better in school because they were started later that that would actually improve their labor market outcomes in such a way as to outweigh any loss that they would have from loss of year but but as um as one of my uh colleagues put it to me well she said of course you could achieve the same objective by just starting girls a year earlier um and then you know so it and then that would give women an extra year in the labor market which might help close some of these lifetime gender earnings gaps and I, i've been thinking about that ever since you said it one of your other uh, ideas is uh, the notion of heel job uh, healthcare education administrative and uh, literacy jobs uh which you uh, posit as a sort of counterpoint to the girls into stem and women and women into stem movements uh, tell us about your notion of, of getting men into heel jobs. Well, if you take those jobs, uh, they're huge sectors, obviously just healthcare and education alone are huge sectors and growing. And in the US anyway, there are some, there are some shortages, some labor shortages in those professions. Um, and what I was quite surprised to discover is that there's the, the share of men in those professions is declining quite sharply. And so, we see the trend lines for women in STEM going up, 
and it's not that we've got to equality yet, but there's been extraordinary progress. I mean, the fact that most scientists in the US are female now, it's pretty extraordinary. And whilst it is true that only 30% of engineers, I think it is, um, sorry, like of engineers are, are women, it's, it's sorry, it's less than that, it's 15%, it's five times as many as it was. So it's not job done, but the trend lines for women in STEM are going up. The trend lines for men in health, education, psychology, social work, they're all going down. They're becoming female professions. So the gender desegregation of the labor market has all been one way. And that's a problem for all kinds of reasons. One, I mentioned the labor shortages. Two, I just think a diversity of provider is important in those sectors. Most obviously take something like education. I just, I don't think it's a good idea to have an education system without any men in it. I don't think it's a good idea to have a care home without any male carers or hospitals without any male nurses or schools without any male counselors or vice versa, of course, in case it needs to be said. But in just the same way that I really, we don't want a world of science or tech that's male dominated. I don't think we want those quotes, traditionally female jobs, which as I've just said, many of them weren't traditionally female to become increasingly female skewed. And you draw out particular examples, such as the fact that the um, uh, typical child going to a guidance uh, to to, uh, to a guidance counselor because they're troubled is a is a boy, but the typical counselor is a girl. Uh, the typical uh, 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 person who is going to uh, a a, psycholo a psychologist for uh, for sort of trouble uh, serious troubles tends to be a man. The typical provider is a woman, and so there's that sort of right. mismatch between client and, and provider there. Uh, some especially, I should say, especially something like substance abuse is a good right. example of that, right? Where actually most substance abusers are male, but most substance abuse counselors are female. And so you just, you, if you just might want to worry about, I mean, I do worry about that kind of mismatch that you've just, uh, just described. And what evidence do we have that the gender match matters in that context, uh, that the no. client does better when the, the counselor is of the same gender? The honest answer, and I know you're, you're a big evidence guy, so I'm not going to try and get this anything past you. Uh, the honest answer is almost none, um, because the research hasn't been done. To the extent that there is any work on the importance of provider-user match, it's been the other way. So in education, for example, there's quite a lot of work on how having female teachers has helped girls, especially in STEM subjects. And how in, in medicine, there's been there's been some work on how having access to kind of female doctors, physicians has, has helped female health outcomes and how having more women in science has actually helped it. But there really hasn't been any research the other way. It hasn't, it hasn't been seen as enough of a problem that there aren't very many men in those professions to be worthy of research and, and research funding. And so to some extent, I, I'm positing that it's not good to have fewer and fewer men in those professions based to some extent on my own experience, my own family's experience and some intuition and frankly, professionals in the field who will say it rather than hard empirical evidence. But I do think it would be helpful to get more, ev more evidence. And I will say one more thing, which is in some of these roles, even if you couldn't prove definitively that, that there are these positive outcomes, I still think it's important in terms of role modeling Right. I mean, is it Gloria Steinem's like, where do children get the idea of what kind of adults they're going to be? So I don't think we always have to prove, prove an efficacy case for these things. If we want our kids to grow up in a world where they see a range of occupations as available to them, I think it's important. So I would argue, for example, to flip it the other way around, that actually having more women in science is a good thing, even if you couldn't show any benefit to science.
right? I still think that it's important for, for girls to see women in science. Yeah, I wouldn't need to believe that, didn't need to be persuaded that uh, rockets would perform better in order to be persuaded that it is good to have some, uh, a, good, a goodly share of the rocket scientists to be women. Right, uh, yeah, or, or another example would be, do we need strong evidence that corporations do better when they have more women on their boards? Um, now, there is some evidence around that, but frankly, I don't find it that persuasive, causally anyway, it looks like the causal arrows sometimes go the other way, but it doesn't matter. The argument for women on boards shouldn't just boil down to, or can you can you show causation to profitability down the line? Or is it just an absolutely clearly the right thing to do? And sometimes it just is clearly the right thing to do. Uh, in terms of how you'd go about that, uh, uh, what mm. sort of measures would you would you put in place? Uh, you talk, for example, in the case of nursing about uh, uh, advertisements which uh, played up the uh, the sort of hyper masculinity of a number of blokes going into nursing that that you don't think is is quite uh, sort of overdoes it a bit. Uh, what are the yeah. best for getting more men into heel jobs? Yeah, well, I think one thing is just uh, like I, particularly young people they believe their eyes, not their ears, and so for them to just see people in those roles. And there's been really strong evidence in the women in STEM movement that if you can just get girls in middle school thinking about math, thinking about science, by getting female scientists and mathematicians into those schools and into high schools um, has quite a big effect. So let's do the same um, for boys. I'm actually really proud of the fact that a, a publisher has just announced that having agreed to, they'd already agreed they were going to publish a book called She Can Stem, aimed at middle school girls with biographies of women in scientific uh, professions. And they've just decided to also do one, He Can Heal with biographies of men in those heel professions. And I'm going to write the forward to it. And I'm incredibly pleased and proud about that because I think that's that's the right approach. We've got to break down these norms, which suggest that those aren't jobs for boys or men in just the same way we've done it for girls. But I also think we've got to be a bit blunt about this and throw some money at the problem. I do believe that there is a case in some of these professions where the public welfare case is sufficiently strong to actually offer some scholarships that are specifically targeted at men, especially men of color, but not just men of color, to go into some of those roles. And so when only 3% of your early years educators are men, I think there's a case for saying you should have some, some male-only scholarships to go into those professions. Again, directly analogous to the scholarships we have for women to go into traditionally male professions. So although off, off the back of it, you off, immediately you might think, wait, what? You're going to have scholarships just for men to go into social work or psychology or early years education? And my answer to that would be, yeah, for now, because the barriers to entry are really high right now for men. And they're getting higher as they skew more and more female. It's getting harder and harder for men to think of those as professions for them. And so I, I don't see, if we care about that, I don't see why the same arguments about scholarships for women into STEM shouldn't also be applied to men into heel. We know that uh, the gender pay gap is fundamentally an issue of uh, differentials in caring. Um, mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact figures, but I, I, I want to say that for Australia, lifetime earnings gaps among men and women who don't have children are about 5%, and among women, men and women who do have children are about 40%. Uh, mm -hmm. So women's uh, uh, when they when women go on what is pejoratively called the mummy track in in, uh, in careers, uh, it becomes quite difficult to get those promotions, and uh, that's where you see the 
the gender pay gap opening up wide. Uh, one of the points you make, Richard, is that uh, if we want equality at work, we need equality at home, uh, and that uh, this is the, the, the inequality in parenting isn't just a factor that's driving the gender pay gap, it's also bad for men because it undermines the potential value that they can bring in the lives of their children. Yeah, I, I, the way I think about this is that we have we have a sort of a half complete revolution in, in, in the way we think about the roles of men and women in relation to the economy and to the family. And so we've seen this huge increase in the share of, kind of women in the labor market. Most families now, if they're together, both parents will work. Uh, 40% of breadwinners in the US are women, 40% of women earn more than the median man, this is all fantastic stuff, right? And so the sense of like the breadwinner being the male role, like has been really significantly undermined correctly and positively. But we haven't seen the equivalent move the other way. So we've seen women moving into the labor market in just extraordinary numbers by historical standards. But we haven't really seen much movement of men into those more traditionally kind of caring roles, which creates all kinds of issues for women, of course, all kinds of stresses in the family. Um, but it can also mean the uh, an agenda pay gap, because unless men start doing more of the the kind of home production, then inevitably you're going to continue to replicate some of the gender inequalities in the labor market. But there's also something a bit deeper here too, which is the role of men as fathers becoming more important in and of itself as opposed to a byproduct of their role as breadwinners. So I like to think of this sometimes as like, you know how in an org chart, you'll get like, a you'll get a straight line and then you get a dotted line, someone like a dotted line thing. Does that, does that make sense to you? Do you know yeah. what I mean when I say that? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a dotted line from, so the old model was like, it was a dotted line from dad to kids, right? Mediate through the mum. And now I think we just need a much more direct relationship between fathers and children. And so one way to do that is through much more paid leave provision, shifts in social norms. But the other thing I will say about this is that it's not just those early years. I worry sometimes in these debates, especially in public policy debates, there's something close to early years determinism. The way that people talk about parenting and family life sometimes makes it sound as if it's game over. It's done by five, right? By, uh, I, I, in terms of outcomes, but also just in terms of the job. And I've got to tell you, my, I've got three boys all in their 20s. It takes more than five years to raise children. And I can also <laughs> tell you, <laughs> so breaking news to anybody out there that has kids that are under five, buckle up, it's going to be at least another two decades and counting as far as I know. But also that there are other periods of life like adolescence, where it's actually incredibly important, maybe for parents to be around more. And so one of the things and, and I'm, I'm interested in the evidence that dads actually seem to have quite a lot to do with their kids in, ad in adolescence. Uh, and it's not that they don't have a role in the early years. But I like the idea of a symmetrical contribution from fathers and mothers over the their child's life, but it doesn't have to be exactly the same time. And it doesn't have to be in the first two years. And so it's that so I, I one policy conclusion is that actually we should make sure that parental leave is available, you know, through through kids' childhood. My brother is still in the UK, he's actually in Scotland. He took his parental leave when his boys turned 14 and started high school because he thought that would be when it'd be most useful for him, for him to be at home. And I think he, I think that was a really smart thing to do. Yes, we find family holidays are the way and often of getting those those big chunks of time. And uh, sometimes scout trips as well can prove pretty pretty useful. Um, but I was reminded in reading the the section uh, this section of your book, uh, Richard, where you talk about um, 
Piers Morgan uh, with his snarky tweet, mm. uh, Daniel Craig uh, carrying, a, carrying a toddler, saying this is, uh, you know, de- demasculating James Bond. And it's a point that um, Alain de Breton makes in one of his books too. He says uh, too much of celebrity gossip is focused on uh, what happens when celebrities break up rather than simply celebrating the celebrity who is taking their kids to the park. So maybe there's a bit of a role for popular culture there to to celebrate dads doing things which are not the most exciting activities in the world, uh, but just incredibly important in the the lives of uh, of their children. Yeah, I'd also in here if like if anyone's anyone from the from the world of media is out there kind of listening to this is let's try and get past the kind of useless dad stereotype that dri- still drives quite a lot um of what's going on you know so if you think about the series Simpsons. like modern family simpsons etc exactly like there is this the, the trope of dad being basically pretty useless and mum is the one who has to kind of fix everything and sort everything out and you know the the sort of eye the the eye rolling in lots of popular culture at dads i can make for some good comedy don't get me wrong but but i think it's corrosive because it's continuing to send this message which is yeah they're a bit useless and i i stayed at home to raise my kids for a bit i you know proud of the role that i've played in my kids family life and i like to think i was good at it Uh, and i don't i don't think we should be surprised if we're struggling to persuade men to do more, to, to take more of an active role. If the climate around them, sometimes from individual women as well as from the culture is, yeah, no, you're just not very good at that, are you? You're a bit useless at that. Those stereotypes are particularly pernicious, I think, on uh, on working class men. Uh, the, the shows you've talked about are, are really having a go at, uh, at, at working class blokes. And in some sense, I suppose, suggesting that the working class blokes don't have much of much of value to add to the modern economy. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. It's inflected through class as well. And and I think that I worry a lot the upper middle class men, especially maybe more on the kind of center left, have, have picked up. They know just how much to do and what to say to sort of be socially acceptable in their feminism and in what they're doing. But very few of them have made a change in their career trajectories. They haven't given up really very much in terms of the kind of tra- traditional trappings of masculine success. What they've done is they picked up all the right opinions. And I don't want to overdo this. Of course, they're doing more with their kids and so on too. But meanwhile, there's a bit of a tendency sometimes for those very same upper middle class men and women to adopt something of a sneering attitude to the sort of unreformed, unenlightened kind of working class guys who are still clinging to these ideas of outdated masculinity and so on too. And and, and of course, we have this adaptation crisis, but but I genuinely feel like some men, especially men who are working class, and we've already talked about men of color, they're not wrong to feel like they're being looked down on sometimes. And that's fatal. It's fatal at an individual level, but I think it's fatal at a societal and a political level too, for any group to feel looked down on or dismissed or denigrated or or pathologized or or whatever i just and so i think that has some bad downstream consequences for our culture you talk too in the book about the political implications of this uh with the election of donald trump being uh driven by by men brexit uh the election Mm -hmm. of jair bolsonaro with his appalling comments about sexual assault Mm -hmm. uh, and then also uh 
President Yoon in uh, South Korea, mm. who won election on a campaign of abolishing the Ministry of Gender Equality. Uh, I suppose part of, of what you're, you're doing in a political sense is trying to, to claim this space before the Jordan Petersons of the world take it, take it over. Yeah, and I want to be clear here that this is not really a partisan point, right? This is, um, I mean, it is a way to get the attention of the people perhaps on the kind of center left, which is like, maybe just from pure political self-interest, you might, you might want to you know, pay some attention to this issue. But in some ways, it's deeper than that, because the people you've just mentioned, or the, the movements you've just mentioned, it's not just that they're conservative. In many cases, they're quite anti-democratic. And I've come to believe, and here I'm channeling the work of scholars like Rachel Kleinfeld and so on too, which, which is this sense that a lot of men feel of loss and vulnerability and dislocation or whatever it is, just like they're just like struggling in one way, their identity is in trouble. And that makes them very vulnerable to a skillful populist, whether that's an online one or a ballot box one. And I do believe that unless those the issues that those men are facing are taken seriously, that that does create conditions under which you will see some of these counter-democratic, counter-mainstream forces. And I'm glad you mentioned South Korea, because I think South Korea is in some ways a really kind of one of the strongest examples of this. And you will see in South Korea a more extreme version of what we're now seeing in the US and elsewhere too, which is a growing gap among young men and women in terms of their political affiliation. Uh, it's really being driven by those young men young women in the 20s and 30s that's really what decided the south korean election and so and there was a recent poll by equimundo in the in the us which found that young men in the us are more likely to agree with the statement that feminism has done more harm than good than older men are right so feminism's much and less popular among young men in the us than older men and 50% of men in the us say that in the us today men get criticized just for acting like men now you can get into what that data is telling us and you can you know you can have constructive discussion about what's meant by it but you, these are data points that we ignore at our peril there are a lot of men out there who are feeling like mainstream institutions one way they are not paying attention to them that makes them vulnerable enter stage right somebody like donald trump who weaponizes that discontent who turns what he and others like him what they're brilliant, they're brilliant. And this is not just about gender now, I'm making a more general point, but specifically about gender. what they're brilliant at is turning problems into grievances and then reaping the political rewards. And the way to stop a problem from becoming a grievance is not to say, it's not a problem. There's no problem, nothing to see here. You're making this up. The way to stop a problem becoming a grievance is to acknowledge it and address it. Richard, after a uh, remarkably successful career at the Brookings Institution, you're about to leave to set up the new American Institute for Boys and Men. Uh, what will it do? It'll be a, a research-based, non-partisan organization working on these issues in, in the spirit of, of this conversation. There is no such organization right now. Uh, I think that's a problem because it, it creates lack of awareness around some of these basic issues. It creates a, a lack of a conversation about you know, evaluations of policies that might help. Uh, if I could put it uh, quite bluntly, what I'm trying to do is make this more boring. And I think I'm, I'm the man for that job <laughs> <laughs> because I do, you know, I think, and I mean, that's only partly jokingly because this, this should be an issue for the policy wonks, not the culture warriors. 
And the way for it to be an issue for the policy wonks is to do more policy wonking around this. Let's just look at what's happening in education. Let's let's ask some questions. Let's look at those studies, those interventions that aren't working and not in a zero sum way, not in a way that in any way takes away from the continued work we need to do for women and girls. And there are dozens of organizations like this doing great work for women and girls, but there aren't any for boys and men. Yeah, it creates an asymmetry. And so I've just decided that, uh, you know, I've been at Brookings 10 years, getting a bit too comfortable. Uh, you know, I, I need to take a few more risks. Uh, and um, so out I go. But but I, I felt a bit more seriously that the response, and I'm very grateful for your interest and in, in this conversation, the response I've had from from people of really good faith to this conversation and their appetite for more work like this has led me to believe that there really is a need for this kind of work. And that the most effective way to do that will be through a new organization that is, is dedicated to it. And I feel to that extent, both the responsibility and, and an opportunity to try and lead that effort, partly for the reasons we were just in, which is like, I it's risky ground, it's tricky stuff, but unless people like us try and navigate that tricky ground, we are seeding that ground to people we should not be ceding it to. Richard, let me close with a handful of questions I ask all of my interviewees. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Study harder. Really? I think of you as being a, a, a bit of a nerd like myself. Do you, you, you uh, mucked around at school? Yeah. Unfortunately, I had the opportunity, especially in my, so I went to a very, you know, quite an order. I went to Oxford University, to everybody's surprise. And I look back on the three years I had surrounded by wonderful teachers and wonderful opportunities to learn, and then think about how I actually spent my time. And I, 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 I curse myself for not making, I've spent the rest of my life in some ways trying to sort of uh, make, make up for my failure to really make make use of the precious economic uh, precious educational opportunities that came my way and i was too busy doing other things and i'm not proud of it what's something you used to believe but no longer do i used to believe that it's more specific to this question the the dis the raising issues of boys and men necessarily meant diminishing one's commitment to women and girls. And through this process and this work recently, I've come to believe that is absolutely not true. And it was a very, it was, and I, so I would not talk about it and I would bite my tongue and I would, I, I would move on from, from difficult data points. And I've come to believe that that was, that was empirically wrong and a disservice to the debate. When are you most happy? When I am at a music festival in just the right temperature, so not too hot, not too cold, listening to a band that my boys and I all like, surrounded by my boys, uh, just you know, chilling in that weird otherworldly experience that you get. They're going to a music festival, which we've been doing since we were quite young. They do it without me now, Andrew. But, um, <laughs> uh, but... Uh, there's something quite magical about just stepping out of the world. And because I'm someone that you said I was a nerd a minute ago, and because I'm someone I spend a lot of time in my brain, I find it hard to get out of my brain. There's something about music and being outdoors and being with my boys that just helps me to just, you know, escape from the sort of tyranny of my own mind for a while and just be in, be in the moment. 
What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I have to, I have to exercise. I know it's something you're interested in as well, but I've just, I've learned the hard way that um, my mental health is, is really impacted by, first of all, like how much do I drink? And so I don't drink anymore. Like I'm turned 50. That's like, that's a simple thing to do. Um, but also just, um, just some kind of physical movement. It doesn't really matter what it is. I'm not a gym rat. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to make any personal bests or whatever, but, but I, I have learned the hard way that unless I just kind of move my body around to some extent, kind of, you know, every day, then I, I pay the price in, in all kinds of ways. So have to do that. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Well, I'm gradually reducing them uh as i get older the, you know, the the avenues of pleasure are getting kind of less and less but i will say that at the end of uh when i've hopefully i've done some exercise i've done some work that just flopping on the sofa and watching something quite bad on tv and and eating some ice cream which i shouldn't really eat for 30 minutes or something is is something that brings me much more pleasure than I should probably be willing to admit for all kinds of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Richard, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Well, uh, that's a slightly um, more sober story, but um, the short version of it is that I was, um, we tragically lost uh, my sister when she was 26 years old. I was 30 at the time. I was, I was with her. She died of cancer and she died with such extraordinary grace because she felt like it, even though her life was curtailed, that she'd really, she'd worked in mental health care. She was a person of just amazing integrity and grace. And she, and therefore she was able to die even at such a young age with, with great sadness, but with incredible grace and no anger. And I realized at that moment that I would not be able to die with as much grace as that because I wasn't living with as much grace as that would require. And so I switched careers. Um, I changed some of what was happening in my family life. Um, I made a lot of changes in my life. And, and, every, and now I just like at the end of every year, I try to sort of evaluate, like if I'd known that was the last year of my life, would it have been dramatically different? It's not like it would have been slightly different if you knew that was your last year. And I realized that um, I, I wasn't answering that question in the affirmative. And I just, I was making too much presumptions. And this is a cliche, of course, when you lose someone close to you when they die, but it really, it's true that it underlined to me that there is a preciousness to life. Um, that means you cannot take a year or a week or a sibling for granted. And that has, that has profoundly affected the way I treat other people, but I would also say how I treat myself and how I treat my own time. Um, because she only had 26 years and she had a great life and I've had a lot more than that and I'm still trying to live up to her. A beautiful story and a, a beautiful way of acknowledging your sister. Uh, Richard Reeves, thank you very much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you and thank you for all your work. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. We'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.